It's February 13, 1897, and Vladimir Olenov, the man who would take on the persona of Lenin during his violent seizure of power within Russia, has just been released from a 14-month prison stay for distributing subversive Marxist literature. There had been no trial, and thus no appeal by the former lawyer. Vladimir just disappeared from the world for more than a year. But once his time was served, the future dictator didn't emerge from prison to freedom. Rather, he was released in order to serve out the remainder of his three-year sentence in Siberian exile. His time away from the immediate concerns of labor activists would be spent putting the finishing touches on the ideology that became Marxism-Leninism. This belief system will go on to shape the soon-to-be-formed Union of Soviet Republics, the group of nations that the West would vilify as the evil empire. Marx, who died when Lenin was a young teenager, believed in a communist utopia where the governing state was summarily discarded in favor of collective peace and tranquility. Lenin never treated Marx's theory as anything but what it was, a theory. His philosophy was designed for the real world, a world where the self-interested elites fight back to preserve the status quo, a world where imperialists would ground any threat to dust before it had a chance to breathe. Although he developed his own philosophical beliefs underneath the umbrella of Marx's communism, the two are completely different philosophies. Take the state, for instance. In Marx's worldview, the government would just peacefully dissipate, allowing all to live in equal harmony. But when Leninism became attached to Marxism, the revolutionary vanguard that dispatches the state never dissipates. Instead, it seizes more and more power from the people, creating one of the most powerful and dangerous forms of government the world has ever known. One might think that the harsh conditions of Lenin's Siberian exile served to form the basis for his intolerant ideology. But like most things in history, you would be mistaken. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the second episode in a series about the life and legacy of Vladimir Lenin. Lenin, the Communist. My nation, the United States, doesn't use exile as a punishment. This doesn't make us better than other places. In fact, we utilize almost every other type of punishment known to man. South Carolina just recently brought back the firing squad on its menu of execution choices after kinks in the supply line emerged for the drugs that comprise the lethal injection cocktail. Before death is considered, the state seeks to either rehabilitate you into a good citizen that pays taxes, extract resources, or work out of you in order to fulfill restitution. Or they just remove you from the populace to fulfill their inherent purpose of protecting its citizens. 
each end benefits the state. If you believe in the power of deterrence, which most experts tell you doesn't work in the case of high crimes, even the death penalty benefits the state in sending a signal to would-be offenders. Exile, however, avoids the state. French philosopher Michael Foucault builds his biopower theories on the concept that the state uses each and every one of us for its own gain. This leviathan, to use Hobbes' term, is never done with the citizens, nor is it ever satisfied. Not all of us are aware of how the state is using us or to what end it's manipulating us. Foucault even argues that most of the bureaucracy doesn't even understand how or if the state is manipulating its citizens. For the clueless deniers of state power among us, Foucault would argue that the state is using you to prove to those of us who are plugged into the state's matrix that we are better off staying within the government's rules rather than outside of them. The U.S. system, therefore, utilizes prison as a way of exerting its power and influence in order to perpetuate its existence. Now it's going to seem that I'm going off on quite a divergent topic in comparison to Vladimir Lenin. But to an extent, this entire episode is about how Vladimir Lenin diverged from others. First Marx, and then later his own supporters. So excuse me, one or two divergences during this episode, including the one we're about to enter into, which involves how the state uses prison labor for its own gain. Although deterrence can aid the state, the most tangible benefit comes from complex prison labor schemes. According to credible reports, prisoners within the system are given little to no choice about taking the offered jobs. Failure to comply often results in solitary confinement, too much of which exerts the same effects upon a person as psychological torture. Worse, the label of difficult becomes attached to them, and because of that identification, years can be added to the sentence. Prison work programs are relatively popular. They are viewed as serving the goal of restitution and providing the prisoner with real-life work skills that they can put to use after they have been successfully rehabilitated. This is only true to an extent. Prison labor has been used to make Kevlar vests for our troops during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. California prison labor helps to fight the ridiculously seasonal wildfires that have become commonplace in an increasingly warming world. Prisoners even form the basis of nationwide call centers. You know, like the ones that you get when you call to put in your pizza order. Vox reports on these call centers utilizing information that comes straight from the federal government's brochure for its cost-effective labor pool that contains both native English and Spanish language skills. It turns out that more than 17,000 inmates work at 50 prison call centers for wages that range from 23 cents to a buck 15 per hour. One CEO that uses the coerced labor describes it as a win-win for everyone involved, enhancing their bottom line while still maintaining the ability to display a Made in America labor sticker. 
The ability to make money off of prisoners offers a perverse incentive to the imprisonment of a nation's citizens. The ability to profit, particularly in a system that allows for the privatization of prisons, demands that their workforce remains behind bars. While Foucault would argue that all forms of the state are bad, we in the 21st century recognize that there are differing degrees of legitimacy of governance. Totalitarian regimes, such as the one that Lenin was imagining, proved to be the worst for its citizens. Rather than masking their flaws, the totalitarian communist regime, or even the Russian czars that Vladimir was trying to topple, had no need to mask its harsh punishments. Rather than convince contrarians of their legitimacy, the totalitarian regime can just make its enemies disappear. Russia had a prison system, but when they wanted to put someone to work for the betterment of the state, they would exile them to a Siberian prison camp, or gulag. These were snow-capped fortresses with prisoners chain-ganged together to haul mining ore to the surface. Wandering past the fallen, frozen bodies of their comrades too weak to continue breathing. Or at least that's what I always assumed a gulag was much the same way that I assumed that the telemarketers harassing me were free citizens. Siberia was the most common destination for those caught up in the practice of Russian exile. By all accounts, it began in the late 1500s, shortly after the Russian state had built a series of military barracks in what was known as the Hinterland. Siberia became the go-to destination for exiles in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the time during which Lenin was first sentenced. Exile as a practice involved the individual for all appearances being abandoned by the state. But Foucault's Leviathan is a crafty beast, for even in abandonment, Russia's exiles were still aiding the state. The emptiness of Siberia, known as a vast, roofless prison, needed to be conquered and made suitable for human habitation. In many regards, it was akin to efforts in sci-fi movies about colonizing the uninhabitable terrain of Mars. In this war between man and nature, the permafrost landscape was the enemy, leading to historian Vasily Kushesugai to remark that Russia is the only nation that colonizes itself. Russia's prisons were intended to rehabilitate, while exile was a punishment specifically designed to punish. The worst criminals received 4 to 25 years in prison, before being eternally exiled. Peter the Great used exile to gather labor for his naval shipyards. Catherine was also great at shipping individuals to work in remote silver mines. It wasn't just the Romanov czars who participated in the practice. Landlords were able to exile unruly serfs in order to send a clear message to their workers. If one didn't enjoy working for the aristocrats in Russia, 
the state would then have its chance to motivate the peasants for the betterment of society. But it wasn't as bad as the picture that I have etched in my brain. One of the benefits of exile versus prison was the fact that families could remain together. In fact, the Russian law demanded that the exiled peasant's family had to also face banishment as well. This forced migration of entire families oversaw the gradual development of Siberia. Once the families were relocated to their assigned village, prisoners were given degrees of freedom that are unimaginable within a traditional penal system. Rather than being kept in cells and released directly into the mine for disturbingly long shifts with no pay, exiled prisoners lived in houses and apartments with their families. Relatively early into the process, the Tsars realized that it was too expensive to house enough soldiers to fully coerce the prisoners to work. So they mostly left them where they were at, hoping that the prisoners would create a society in which they could survive for the duration of their sentences. Human nature intrinsically involves a desire to survive. The Russian prisoners worked in order to receive their food and had the ability to move freely throughout the settlement. Prior to 1863, Russian exiles were branded with the letters K-A-T on their forehead. But Russia later figured out that the vastness of Siberia kept the prisoners in check, as there was simply no ability to escape on foot for much of the year. Anton Chekhov, a journalist, traveled willingly to report on the practice of Siberian exile. He reported shocking conditions which resorted in large numbers willing to risk joining General Cuckoo's army. This so-called army, organized each and every spring as the slight thawing of the permafrost, offered the opportunity for prisoners to chance traveling the road to freedom. Risk was inherent in joining General Cuckoo's army, as the recapturing of an exile was met with up to 60 lashes, and years added to their Siberian sentence. Between 1838 and 1846, 14,000 males and 3,500 female refugees were recaptured by the state. Still, there were many who escaped their wallless jails, perhaps to the extent of half of those that were sentenced to serve in Siberia. The ragtag army of exiles were also referred to by peasants as the hunchbacks, as the work in the penal camps often left the convicts worse for wear. To its citizens' detriment, Russia didn't seem to care too much about the fact that half of their prisoners ended up as escapees. The poor and destitute hunchbacked convicts turned Siberia into what historian Daniel Beer referred to as Russia's wild east, with convicts that sought strength and protection in numbers, terrorizing entire towns and cities with arson, kidnapping, violent robbery, rape, and murder. Zana Pava writes in the International Review of Social History that, quote, there were officially eight categories of exiles whose status differed to the extent of the deprivation of their rights and the lengths of their terms, plus the category of Katsurni, the convicts deemed the most dangerous. 
Exile to Siberia was not only a punitive measure, and therefore not only part of the criminal justice system, but also an embodiment of the state's desire to control the colonization of Siberia. To a lesser extent, it was also an instrument of communal self-governance. Rural and urban communities could expel their undesirable members to Siberia. By law, administrative exiles became members of communities in Siberia, even though other members of those communities might consider them burdensome, and more than one community opposed the practice of administrative exile by complaining to local and central authorities. For the exiles, the main difference that belonging to one of the official categories entailed was the destination of their displacement. Vladimir was one of the lucky ones. He was caught red-handed running an illegal Marxist newspaper. He spent 14 months in a St. Petersburg jail that was incredibly lax regarding its security protocols. Utilizing invisible ink, he remained in regular communication with labor organizers. After his prison stay, Lenin was assigned to a three-year administrative exile. He had been assigned to a small town on the river Yenzi, one that the exiles referred to as the Italy of Siberia. He was given a small peasant's hut and spent many relaxing weekends hunting with the rifle that he was allowed to own. He was given a basic allowance from the government that was double the wage of a worker in the capital. It was enough to pay a peasant girl to cook and clean for him. The worst part of the exile was the abject boredom of the ordeal, something that he tried to fix through the purchase of an Irish setter hunting dog. Although his mail was regularly intercepted, he was able to write to family members and even play chess by correspondence with some internationally known players. Exile became even more enjoyable when he was joined by the first love of his life, Nadia. The two got engaged so that she could, as his legally recognized fiancé, join him in his exile. The proposal was sweet in a revolutionary sense. Nadia was in prison and facing her own exile for the same crimes that her beloved had been found guilty of. They were married at the local church upon her arrival. She was extremely religious, but Vladimir had already sworn the path of an atheist, believing only in the power of the revolution. A fellow exile fashioned two rings from copper coins for the newlyweds. The coupling was a match made in heaven. The two enjoyed their honeymoon translating Marxist books into Russian while simultaneously working on their German together. Individuals that knew them claimed that it was commitment to the cause rather than love that kept them together. The time spent in Siberia would be fondly remembered by Nadia as one of the happiest periods of her life. Despite the fact that Vladimir's exile involved a hunting rifle, time with his wife, and a dog, exile isn't something that you want to prolong. His sentence was lifted six months before his wife, and he immediately rejoined the fight for revolution. 
he moved to Skov, the closest he could get to St. Petersburg without violating the terms of his parole. He remained determined that a party newspaper was the key to popularizing the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party, the group that would become the Communist Party. He petitioned the state for permission to travel abroad once more. Again, he was granted permission, not because Tsarist Russia was so gullible, but because they again felt that he would cause them less harm abroad. He packed up for what would be five years away from the homeland. That time was devoted to Lenin's first paper, Iskra, or Spark. In Vladimir's mind, the paper would popularize the communist message and rally the people to the cause. Lenin would go on to publish more than 10 million words in his lifetime. The start of it came during this time abroad. Those in the movement simply referred to him as Ilyich but he began to increasingly write under the pseudonym of Lenin, one of his many fake aliases. Vladimir never explained where the name originated from or why that was the one that stuck, but his actual identity remained hidden from the Russian agents that sought to prevent his ideas from reaching the Russian masses. Although it is impossible to imagine in the 21st century, no one ever published a picture of what Vladimir Lenin looked like. We tend to think of authoritarians as obsessed with their own image, but Lenin was more interested in the written word rather than propaganda imagery. He first began work on Iskra in Munich, Germany. The purpose of the paper was to unite the fractured Marxist groups throughout Europe. He hoped that the paper would be the collective agitator and collective organizer an enormous pair of bellows that would blow every spark of class struggle and popular indignation into a general conflagration. If there's one thing to say about young Vladimir Lenin, it is that he always thought big. That doesn't mean that he had the ability to accomplish those dreams. Lacking the financial resources, he turned to one of his wife's close friends. She dumped so much money into the project that she acquired her own codename, Moonlighting as The Bucket. Although he was now growing in influence, Lenin's name was not enough to launch a unifying newspaper. For that, he turned to the best-known Russian radical, Georgi Plunkanov. He tried to woo his target through the written word. But Lenin soured on the man after Plekhanov responded that Lenin's request for him to join Iskra's board was poorly written and too pedestrian in tone for him to accept. Vladimir told his confidants that his infatuation with Plenekov disappeared as if by magic, and I felt offended and embittered to an unbelievable degree. Never, never in my life had I regarded any other man in such sincere respect and veneration. Never had I stood before any man so humbly, and never before had I ever been so brutally kicked. There could be no doubt that this man was bad. Yes, bad, Lenin said, inspired by petty motives of personal vanity and conceit. An insincere man. 
Often the insults that we project on others have a way of explaining what we internally know is wrong about ourselves. Vladimir received some criticism from an elite leader. His response was to label that man immediately as a villain, one that suffered from vanity and conceit. This moment would preview the leader that Vladimir would become, one that would suffer no criticism from others, even those that he had previously respected. Lenin wouldn't be the vanguard of the people. He would be the state. For in his mind, he had all the correct answers. Despite Lenin's own reservations, Plekhanov eventually joined the editorial board of Ishkra. He corresponded from Switzerland, while another board member wrote in from London. Lenin, still residing in Germany, was in charge of the printing. On December 11, 1900, the first issue was printed and published, outlining the ideas that would become Leninism and identifying the principal tactics that he would use to topple the Russian government. It was in this issue that the term socialist vanguard first entered the communist lexicon. There are more similarities between Marxism and Leninism than differences, but the divergences amount to irreconcilable differences. Vladimir begins to outlaw his deviations from Marx in his early writings. While the German philosopher wrote in pure theoretical terms about the supposed inevitability of a class-based nonviolent revolution, Lenin had both feet firmly placed in the practical world. Thus, much of the differences between the ideologies comes from the Ulanov's effort at shoehorning Marx's ideology to fit it within the story of Russia's past, present, and future. The most obvious divergence is Marx's insistence of an industrialized nation as a prerequisite to revolution. In his mind, it would be the industrial revolution that brought together the urban proletariat to such a degree that it would become impossible for the bourgeoisie to not reckon with the suffering that occurred at their hands, because of the working conditions that underpinned their profits and parties. Russia, under the Romanovs, however, remained a backwards agrarian society. Thus, Leninism departed from traditional socialism to instead focus on industrial development, rather than industrial decay. Never could the inventor of theoretical Marxism have imagined that Russia would be the sandbox that would put his theories to the test. To illustrate the point, Marx hardly mentions Russia in the 700 pages of his magnus opus, Capital, and lets his real feelings show in a letter to his writing partner Frederick Ingalls, in which he stated bluntly that he did not trust any Russian. As soon as a Russian worms his way in, he said, all hell breaks loose. There was no room for a Russian in the utopian paradise that Marx theorizes of after a peaceful exchange of power and dissolving of the state, one in which the capitalists would willingly acknowledge their wrongs and join in solidarity with their working-class brothers and sisters. Lenin, on the other hand, was much more realistic. He believed that imperial capitalist states would intervene, either violently opposing the shifting of power or soothing the workers' rage by providing additional benefits, such as a shorter workday, 
or increased pay. Upton Sinclair provides a wonderful window into how the real world would react to Marxist infiltration. Sinclair wrote The Jungle in 1906, and the book was a massive success. The author utilized the experiences of a fictional Lithuanian immigrant family to expose the horrors inherent to the Chicago meatpacking industry. Chapter 3 introduces the main protagonist to one of the slaughterhouses, and the reader is dramatically taken for a tour following the fate of hogs placed on a one-way conveyor belt of insensitive mechanized death. The book was designed as an expose on the corrupt practices inherent to the industrial world for an American socialist magazine. The entire story is intended to showcase how unfair the working world was to the everyday laborers. Readers, however, didn't quite understand the underlying message. To them, the only thing exposed were the horrid conditions that their food was slaughtered and packaged in. Sinclair had to come out and declare that he was a socialist in order to redirect the public's attention to his work, which became known as the Uncle Tom's Cabin of Wage Slavery. The book was eventually banned in Yugoslavia, Germany, and South Korea for its tacit endorsement of socialism. The Nazis even included it in their book burnings. America was the intended audience for Sinclair, but the Stars and Stripes socialist revolt never came. Rather than starting a socialist revolution, President Teddy Roosevelt used the book's popularity to create the Food and Drug Administration in order to reassure the public that their safety was of paramount importance. Along with some improvements to worker conditions, the U.S. federal government paper-mached over the worst that the Industrial Revolution had to offer. Rather than seeing a bright-eyed immigrant slowly descend into disillusionment and destruction after being systematically beaten down in the same manner of the pigs meekly waiting for their turn to die, Americans only cared about how many first names their hot dogs had, as well as caring about how many fingers had made their way into that summer ballpark treat. The experience of Sinclair in Chicago proved Lenin true that Marx's revolution was never inevitable. In Lenin's mind, it was wrong to sit and wait for it. Instead, he felt the intense need to invest everything he had into forcing that revolution. It wouldn't be the workers waking up from their despair that would lead the cause. In Russia's socialism, it would be enlightened nobles such as himself that would sacrifice their lives for the workers. The vanguard group would become the Bolsheviks, and in Lenin's mind they would stay around as long as necessary. Another clear departure from Marx's utopia. The German had believed that government would be unnecessary once the two warring social classes of the aristocracy and the working poor united together as one. Although Lenin wrote that the vanguard would eventually step aside, his private notes indicate that he never believed it to be so. He intended for the Bolsheviks to rule forever. There would be no dictatorship of the proletariat. 
Instead, the Communist Party would be the ones to decide what was best for the workers in perpetuity. Marx provided a theory. Lenin provided the blueprint. The Russian was fully aware of what he was doing, stating for the record that, quote, for me, theory is only a hypothesis, not the Holy Scripture. It is a tool in our daily work. Iskra, the platform designed to subconsciously subvert Marxists into Leninists, was immediately deemed subversive and illegal. It is believed that only 10% of the printed copies ever reached the eyeballs of its membership. But Lenin devoted this period of his life to the expansion of the paper. Obsessed with routine, Lenin began each day at the local library before beginning work on the paper after lunch. Nadia would iron through the mail in order to discover secret messages sent from Russia. A year after the launch, 1,000 professional revolutionaries were working as agents for Iskra. Some of these were paperboys, risking exile in Siberia in order to smuggle the news to their readers, while others were shifting through gossip to pull out news that would help to erode the popular support of the Russian czars. The group comically abided by the rules of spycraft, each taking on nicknames. Lenin was the old man. Nadia became the fish because her eyeballs sat almost on the sides of her face as if she were, in fact, a fish. Others became the rook, or the tree. They announced their presence to each other with secret knocks and codes, such as, We are the swallows of the coming spring. Seeking more control and the removal of Plenekov from the board, Lenin and Nadia traveled to London. Besides the library, which Lenin called the greatest in the world, his first impression found little to be desired. Finding London to be hideous, particularly their language and food. Although he had studied English, the London accent made it impossible for him to communicate with the locals. He overcame this barrier to an extent by taking in every theater performance that he could. The move to England was timely, as Okrana agents had succeeded in their efforts to convince the German police that Lenin was dangerous and needed to be sent a clear message. The British, however, had a long history in taking in radical exiles, including Marx himself. The central domed reading room of the British Museum fascinated Vladimir, and he cherished the fact that he was able to sit and read each morning in the same room that Karl Marx had spent so much of his life. This is one of the things that fascinates me about Vladimir Lenin, and saddens me regarding my own nation's history. So let me digress for a moment here and talk about the completely unrelated September 11th attacks. The hijackers had been indoctrinated to hate America. I can understand how this works from afar. After being selected, they received visas, came to the United States, and resided here among their supposed enemies for an entire year. During this time, they remained on the run from immigration customs and enforcement agents. 
They learned to fly a plane without bothering to learn how to land it, and even lived for months literally across from a national security agency team. It is easy to vilify an outside force, but those hijackers lived among Americans for more than a year. One wonders about the daily interactions that subsequently failed to convince them that we were not the demons that we had been portrayed as in their training sessions. A year after living among us, they still remained committed to murdering us. I bring this up because it's fair to think the same towards Vladimir Lenin, who for the better part of five years lived a charmed life among the most advanced capitalist nations that the world had to offer. London grew on him during those years. He eventually found restaurants that catered to his liking. Although their housing wasn't extravagant, he and his wife were free of the watchful eyes of Okrana. He had access to the British Museum and made friends during his daily excursions to the library. They even took to tea with every English breakfast. Historian Victor Sebastian tracked down one of the librarians from the time and was shocked when he heard that he could not remember hosting Vladimir Lenin. But upon questioning whether the man had remembered a Mr. Ulanov coming in, the librarian's eyes lit up, and he proclaimed, Oh yes, a very charming gentleman, short with a pointed beard, a very nicely spoken man. Do you know what became of him? Lenin found the London theater scene a little complicated, but interesting and Nadia claimed that the couple began to look around this citadel of capitalism with some curiosity. The couple spent weekends in the countryside, at one point telling comrades that we are exploring every bit of the surrounding country. We discover various rural paths. We know all the places nearby, and intend to go further afield. One wonders about an alternative path that this man could have taken. Perhaps he could have turned the other cheek and forgotten his family's tragic history regarding the Tsars. With his intellect, he could have found work within London and joined the capitalist cause rather than seeking its demise. For more than a year, the British had a chance to show Vladimir Lenin that they weren't a version of the face of evil that he had always imagined capitalism to produce. It was likely his all-consuming hatred of the Tsar prevented him from peacefully living out his life in the British countryside. If he did ever imagine such an existence, a knock on his door in October of 1902 would have woken him from his pleasant daydreams. For when he opened the door, he laid eyes on Leon Trotsky for the very first time. Trotsky was a leading voice of the Russian Revolution from the moment he arrived to wake Lenin from his morning slumber until his 1929 exile and subsequent death by orders of Joseph Stalin. The name of Trotsky was just another Bolshevik alias. His real name was Lev Davidovich Bronstein, 
and his story is another fascinating one that is worth a meander from our main storyline. He had been born into a Ukrainian well-to-do Jewish farming family. Russia's long history of anti-Semitism made life difficult for the young man. Sebastian explains the appeal of Marxism to young men like Trotsky by pointing out that they were persuaded because it offered a scientific solution to Russia's two principal problems of liberating itself from autocracy and developing from backwards semi-feudalism. It appealed to Jews not because Marx was Jewish, or rather a Jewish atheist, but because popularism and back-to-the-land ideas offered an archaic vision of peasant Russia, with it pogroms and discrimination against Jews. Marxism promised to assimilate Jews, a modern and western vision that preached universal human liberation based on ideas of internationalism. These dreams were difficult for individuals of Jewish descent to claim for themselves. In Trotsky's Ukraine, only 5% of a school's population were even allowed to be made up of Jewish students. Once admitted, he quickly rose to the top of his class. The movie Vanilla Sky introduces my favorite quote. The answer to 99 out of 100 questions is money. The thought is incredibly relevant to the topics at hand. Marx and his early communists viewed everything through an economic lens. But economics can only explain 99% of the issues. My own personal study of history suggests the one remaining question can oftentimes be explained by women. Or at least man's obsession with women. Trouble began for Lev Bronstein when his girlfriend converted him to Marxism. I haven't yet discovered something that a young boy won't do for what he believes to be true love. Trotsky joined up to an underground Marxist group that his girlfriend introduced him to, and committed himself so fully that he was arrested and exiled to Siberia. He did manage to impress the young woman, who became his first wife. The alias of Trotsky had originally belonged to one of his jailers, but ended up on a forged passport that saw him escape via a short stint in General Cuckoo's army. Trotsky was a charismatic, self-taught genius who immediately struck up a friendship with Lenin based upon mutual respect something few men were able to achieve with the strictly utilitarian Lenin. Trotsky was a fanboy and had sought Vladimir out in 1902, after reading Lenin's work, The Development of Capitalism in Russia, while serving his sentence. Neither Trotsky nor Lenin found many individuals with whom they could work hand-in-hand -hand with. Historian Robert Daniels reveals to us that while Trotsky was a gifted writer and talker from boyhood, he always looked slightly sinister, and his abrasive temperament made it hard for him to work with equals. It likely didn't help that Trotsky always believed he was the smartest man in any room, and his ego and self-belief extended into every avenue of his life, including his fascination with attractive women. 
Lenin had just finished showing Trotsky around London when he discovered that Georgi Plukhanov had convinced the Iskra board to move the newspaper's production closer to his home in Switzerland. Lenin would be forced to abandon London and move to Geneva, the mere thought of which was enough to send the future dictator to two weeks of bed rest with a nervous illness that was commonly referred to at the time as holy fire. The budding friendship between Lenin and Trotsky was immediately put to the test in 1903. Less than one year after Vladimir was forced to move to Geneva, the Second Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party began in August of 1903. It was a defining moment for Lenin and his movement. An argument broke out among the delegates regarding who should be allowed to join the Communist Party. Lenin favored a small group of die-hard revolutionaries. He put forth his belief that the revolution was not inevitable and would instead have to be violently triggered. For this, he argued that the party needed to be made up of individuals who viewed the revolution as their profession, rather than as a hobby. He also bluntly stated that it's harder to catch a dozen clever people than a hundred fools. Julius Martov rose in opposition to Lenin and presumably in support of hundreds of fools that were in the room, arguing that the revolution needed to be a broad-based populist coalition that allowed its members to freely express themselves. Lenin viewed himself as the high priest of the movement and rhetorically asked himself what would be the point of leading a congregation if each of your members were free to interpret your teachings however they wished? As the two men shouted out their positions, Martov came to the conclusion that Lenin was proposing a dictatorship. Believing that he had outmaneuvered his opponent, he excitedly revealed the authoritarian nature of Lenin's plans only to hear the words come directly from Lenin's lips. Yes, I am proposing a dictatorship. There's no other way. Martov won the vote against the would-be dictator 28 to 23. But after a longer series of contentious debates before decisive votes, the five-person Jewish bloc left the proceedings in annoyance leaving Martov and Lenin deadlocked at 23 voting delegates apiece. Gradually, the abrasive debate style of Lenin turned the tide, with the help of a clever rhetorical flourish. The violent rhetoric was classic Lenin, who managed to get delegates to the verge of physically beating one another. He baited one of his opponents by insulting his recently deceased mistress, he told another delegate, you just keep your mouth shut, you old dodderer. The insults were scientific in nature, as he launched verbal assaults and recorded the reactions of his targets. The surprisingly clever rhetorical flourish came after he began to win the votes. After successfully removing some of Martov's supporters from the board of Ishkra, he labeled his opposition in the room as the minority or Menchistov in Russian. He began to refer to his supporters as Bolchinsov, 
or the majority. This labeling of the majority represented the schism within the Russian revolutionary movement, as the two names stuck. From 1903 on, there were Lenin's small group of Bolsheviks, which meant majority, and the substantially larger group of Mensheviks, a title that indicated a minority viewpoint. Trotsky somewhat surprisingly took the side of the Mensheviks in opposition to his idol Lenin. They would spend the next 13 years trading insults with each other, Lenin regularly referring to him during this time with the anti-Semitically charged term of Judas Trotsky. Things looked dire for Lenin, who despite the name was in the clear minority. The Mensheviks fired him from Iskra, and then utilized Lenin's own paper to declare their opponent a political corpse, a Jacobin, a terrorist, and accurately, a despot. Everyone left the meeting exhausted and disillusioned with the state of the movement. Everyone except for Vladimir Lenin, who remarked, What a splendid Congress! A free and open struggle. Opinions expressed, tendencies revealed, groups acquiring shape. Hands raised, a decision taken, a stage passed through. Forward, there's something I understand. For most of us, the whittling down of support would be the cause of self-reflection and course correction. The Second Russian Congress had the opposite effect on Lenin. Now, more than ever, he was convinced that he, and he alone, had the ability to take down the Tsar and establish the world's first ever communist government. It was only 1903, but for Lenin, the revolution had truly just begun. We'll look at the steps that he took to bring about his successful 1917 revolution in our next episode.